This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's episode, well, we're going to ancient Africa. We're talking about one of the most significant sets of migrations in human history. It's called the Great Bantu Expansion. Now, before researching for this podcast episode today, I had never really even heard of this series of migrations And I was blown away. I was blown away completely in today's episode because they are so fascinating. They are so important and they're also so seismic. This evidently wouldn't have just been a very peaceful set of migrations. There would have been bloodshed. You see metals at the heart of it. You see different communities emerging all across central, southern, eastern, western Africa. It's fascinating, and I know you're going to absolutely love today's episode because our guest is none other than Luke Pepper. Luke, he's been on the podcast a couple of times before to talk about the Kingdom of Kush, but also attitudes towards race in the Greco-Roman world. It was a pleasure to let Luke talk through the story of the Great Bantu expansion, something that he knows so much about. So without further ado, to talk about this fascinating moment from human prehistory, from our ancient history, here's Luke. Luke, great to have you back on the pod, buddy. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you, Tristan. You're more than welcome. Always a pleasure having you on the podcast. And this time, the Bantu migration, extraordinary moment in Africa's ancient history, something I knew absolutely nothing about. And it seems that it's not very much focused on today in the English-speaking world. Yeah, I mean, it's the Bantu migration is such an instrumental part of African history because the Bantu are one of the major ethnic groups in Africa, especially in eastern 
and southern Africa. And over a period of, you know, a few thousand years beginning, maybe three to four thousand years ago, they just dominated the cultures of southern Africa and eastern Africa. And they've changed them, I mean, so much over that period of time to what we have today. But it's incredible because it was so different from what existed in Africa beforehand. So it was like a revolution. It, it completely revolutionized most of the cultures of the continent and especially Southern Eastern Africa. And actually, I think it's important also for the rest of the world because obviously you had migrations of people then afterwards out of Africa and people were coming to Africa and that intermixing as well. So it affected also the ancestry of peoples and other places when either Africans, the Bantu themselves, went out and intermixed with others or when people came to Africa, especially Eastern and Southern Africa, and mixed with them there. Well, how far back in time are we going there for with this migration? Yeah, I mean, about 2000 BC is when people think it sort of began. But I think Bantu migration is a bit of a misnomer because it's not one migration, it's actually a series of potentially hundreds of migrations. Because it's over a period of, yeah, it's over a period of like 4,000, three to 4,000 years. So, but yeah, that's about where it starts. So what kinds of sources do we therefore have available? You have no sources, Tristan. To be perfectly honest with you, I mean, I'm making up as I go around out. No. Okay, what to be fair, what's great actually about the bounty migration is because there are not really any written sources, but because the scholars have always tried to build up a picture of what exactly happened, you can't look at just one thing. One thing doesn't tell you enough. So you have to look at linguistic, archaeological, genetic, those are like the main three. Linguistic especially has been useful because when the Bantu moved to different places, there were basically in these places, in the places they moved to across southern and eastern Africa, there were lots of groups of hunter-gatherers. And then when the Bantu sort of moved into these places, obviously those hunter-gatherers took on their language, but the Bantu languages that are now spoken then have like hints of the hunter-gatherers languages as well because they took like a few words. So you can basically chart where they moved by looking at how much the language has changed over a certain part. So obviously, if it's changed a lot, you're going to a certain part, then you think, okay, so these people, they must have come here later than they were here because this is closer to their original language where, because the Bantu migration is thought to have started from like modern day Cameroon. So it's like West Africa. That's like the origin, the origin where the Bantu right. were before they moved. So basically the languages now the spoken with like a Bantu heritage that are furthest away from the ones spoken in like West Africa, what you say is, okay, then these people obviously were a lot later down the line. They must have migrated to other places first before they got here. So linguistic is huge. It's sort of a similar thing with genetic and archaeological as well, because you're comparing the pottery, for example, of later Bantu groups to the ones that were made by the Bantu groups, not just of the past, but also where they originally were in West Africa. Um, so then you're also looking at who they mixed with. So you can say, okay, there are these distinctive Bantu features, but then we're also seeing features from other places, from the peoples of the cultures of Sudan, like the ancient Sudanese, or, you know, hunter-gatherers who potentially lived in East Africa. So then you can sort of build up a picture of where different groups might have moved. But then again, it's several groups. So if you, for example, they're starting off in like Cameroon and West Africa, and then one group moves, and then they change in the midst of their movement, and then they go somewhere else. I mean, it's like, how different is that group, which would change in the middle from the original group anyway? Can you even consider them Bantu? Because, uh, you know, they might have taken more features from another place. So they have a tiny bit of Bantu heritage, but they're not Bantu anymore. It's, yeah, hopefully that. Mate, <laughs> that you've basically sense. laid out your research conundrums that you've had. Yeah, I mean, speaking about it now, I was like, hopefully that sort of makes sense. Yeah. I think the key thing to take away is that 
there were successive migrations, but what's important to remember is that as different Bantu groups are moving through Eastern and Southern Africa, so they start off in West Cameroon, there are some who go down the Atlantic coast towards sort of Angola, there are some who go east towards Kenya and Tanzania, as they're moving towards these places, again, over centuries, they are interacting with different groups of hunter-gatherers. They are taking different aspects of their cultures, their unique cultures, and new cultures are basically being formed over a period of centuries. So that's what's key to remember about the Bantu migration. And, you know, I'm writing about in, in the book that I'm currently working on, Motherland, and, you know, it's actually in a chapter about diversity. Because, you know, what I'm saying is that what is interesting about the Bantu migration is that it demonstrates to you the diversity of the African continent. Because, yes, all these people are Bantu, have Bantu origins, but because they mixed with so many different groups of hunter-gatherers over the course of centuries, they all became so different. So they all became really diverse, even though they all have Bantu heritage. It's so interesting when you compare it to other migrations like from that far in the past. My, yeah. my mind instantly goes like the Bika migrations and the Bika people. Oh, yeah. Okay, and yeah. Yeah, named after their iconic style of pottery yes, so you can yeah, trace yeah. where they go. So that pottery, you do have that pottery with Bantu as well. So you yeah, can you use do. that as archaeological evidence also alongside the genetics to get an idea yeah, of where exactly. they go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, So the pottery, but then also um, ironworking as well, because some, that's the Bantu are credited basically with spreading ironworking and also farming, like cattle farming culture across southern and eastern Africa. But it might be that, for example, so I mentioned how there were some Bantu groups who went down the Atlantic coast and there are some who went east just above the central african rainforest and they ended up in kenya and tanzania when that second group that i mentioned were in kenya and tanzania they interacted with the ancient sudanese who already had better experience of iron working and then also farming in particular and you know cattle farming culture it's potentially from them that those banzu groups became more proficient in iron working and cattle working and then going back to pottery that's where they developed a distinctive pottery ware which was used to help us trace their movement. But then what happens after that is that some of those Bantu, the Bantu who mixed with the central Sudanese around Kenya and Tanzania, so this was around the Great Lakes region. Yes. So maybe it might be helpful to label those guys, the Bantu who mixed with the central Sudanese in the Great Lakes region, Great Lakes Bantu. And some of those Great Lakes Bantu, some go sort of south and east, but some go back west and they meet the Atlantic Bantu. So they go back west to Angola. That's, that's the first group. Exactly, yeah, so, sorry, this was yeah. the very first group, group who just went straight yeah. south, and they meet in northern Angola and create a new group called the Angolan Bantu, and then they move southwards. So the reason I mentioned that example is that what can also happen is that you have a Bantu group mixed with, for example, in the Great Lakes, the Central Sudanic group, they form an, a new group is formed, and then that group splits off. So some go west, some go east, and then they mix with different peoples during their travels and new groups are made. It's not like all of those people went, for example, west. Some might have stopped off halfway, a quarter of the way, and, you know, interacted with the hunter-gatherers in that region and formed their own unique culture. So you're basically just having all these like nodes, like these different cultures with the migration just popping up all over the place or developing their own unique culture. And that is a testament, for example, to the diversity of of African peoples, because there's been so much migration and mixing in so many different groups who have emerged in Africa for so long, that's what can give rise to such a diversity of peoples, even when a massive or even when like a series of migrations by one group of people occurs. And you mentioned all this encountering hunter-gatherer groups. Yeah. So right from the start of the Bantu migration, the people who are moving, who are migrating, are they already 
Assessors, are they already pastoralists, yeah. farmers? They are. They're sort of small-scale farmers because part of the reason that they they seem actually to have been living at least, you know, some of them a sedentary lifestyle because part of the reason, or at least one of the reasons some people have put forward for why they moved was basically uh, like a population overload. So before they moved, well, a long time before, maybe let's say about maybe 10,000 years ago, you know, within the last 15 years, we have the advent of the Holocene. So before they have the Younger Dryas period, which is like, cold and dry and you know erratic weather and then you have the holocene which is what we've been living in for you know thousands of years which is a lot more stable you know that's why we have you know the seasons and it's wetter there's more rainfall so the bantu in cameroon were enjoying this new environment this new change of climate and you know we're sedentary where must have been farmed to some extent but what happens is that because they could feed more people after they'd got a hang of the seasons etc and were growing more crops i think there wasn't as much animal husbandry but, you know, we're growing crops and then able to feed their populations and their populations increase. And then some people are sort of encouraged to move away because of um, their feeling that there might be, you know, pastures anew or there might be issues with scarcity after a certain point, after a certain break point. Or there were some groups, for example, who were living in Cameron who were mainly... They were sedentary, but they weren't farmers because obviously with the advent of the Holocene, when crops became more abundant, because beforehand, obviously, you'd gather, you'd get, you'd forage in an area but you would take all the resources that were there in terms of food and then you'd have to move to a different place in order to take the resources there. But because there was greater abundance after the Holocene, people moved a lot less. So they were foraging in certain places for longer. But some deciding to move southwards for more land. And then what's also key is that just before the Bantu moved as well is that the Central African, there was also climate change affecting the northern border of the Central African rainforest and it became savanna land. So it was easier to penetrate because Central African rainforest is like really dense. It's not, it's definitely not easy. I mean, I know this even with the yeah, so I'm Ashanti, the Akan. Our historical narrative, for example, involves, you know, us cutting down the forests of now what is modern day Ghana and clearing the land in order to be able to live there. Because it's just like dense forest land in some parts of, you know, so the Central African rainforest is dense, but climate change just beforehand leads to the northern border becoming savannah land. So there is actually space to move southward, which is why some Bantu do. And then it also clears up just on the on the West African coast, which is why there's also an easier path in order to move southward. So that seems to be one of the reasons, maybe why certain Bantu groups move. You know, I mean, always imagine, for example, doing, like, how would you represent this, for example, if you were doing it as, like, a TV drama? Because I think what's really interesting is that we talk about the Bantu migration, but then there must have been individuals, people like us, maybe making a decision or falling out with, you know, it could have been something so personal. You know, it's just individuals or leaders, leaders of different Bantu groups who maybe have fallen out or they want more resources or, you know, to move their people somewhere. And they actually just make that decision as individuals to be like, okay, we're going to go to a different part. And I think that's it's just unfortunate because it's something that we've lost not having, of course, any written documents. That's what might have brought that out a bit more. Because when you're going by the archaeology and the linguistics and the genetics, you get a general sense of the movement, but it all feels, you know, very impersonal, very group-like. And actually, it might have just been a great figure, maybe a Genghis or like Alexander the Great mm. figure, like literally just one person making the decision to move, as opposed to a whole group of people making, you know, a, a group decision to go somewhere else. It's like a Noah kind of figure. Well, I guess yeah, like a exactly. Moses kind of thing. Exactly. Well. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it could have been like that, you know what I mean? Yeah. So you're, it's... Yeah, that's definitely something we lose not having the um, the written stuff. Maybe if we could take a step back, because sure. I appreciate there's so many different strands to this migration. We've explained the causes of what may well have caused it. And you mentioned like these various groups there, Group 1 down the Atlantic coast, yes, Group 2 yeah. to the Great Lakes. Yes, yeah. If we focus on Group 1, first of all, yeah. what do we know or what do you think is the 
the story most likely for this group which goes down the Atlantic seaboard? Yeah, I think that one is, aside from more resources, more land, I think. I mean, there are, it seems, or, you know, the, the change in climate is, it seems, encouraging people to, you know, forcing or encouraging whatever it is people to live in a different way. There was just pressure, population pressure, which forced other groups to move to different places. And why they decided to go down the the Atlantic first, I don't know if it's, or, you know, down that part rather than going east again. It could have just been one person saying it's more sensible to go down via a waterway than to try and traverse the Sahel, like go across to East Africa. You know, I don't know. But in terms of the impetus to move, that for me is the reason. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and this month on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm dusting down my magnifying glass to investigate some of history's most notorious murders and brutal crimes. Was it a quarrel, or was the brilliant playwright Christopher Marlowe actually murdered in that Deptford Inn? Was Amy Dudley, wife of Elizabeth I's favourite Robert, pushed down a flight of stairs to her death? Were the Guise, that great French family, actually bloodthirsty murderers who secured their power through ruthlessness and violence? And what's the truth about the Hungarian noblewoman who allegedly killed hundreds of young women? Join me, but not on an empty stomach, for not just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. All right, Ancients listeners, I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my fellow History Hit podcast host, John Wildman and his direct audio from the hit TV show, Mysteries at the Museum. Now on Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find the objects that tell shocking stories of American history. 
you'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history, and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids. What I love about this podcast is that it's a deep dive into specific objects, revealing the amazing stories they can tell about a person, about a place, or a time in history. It's the detail and laser focus that really resonates with me. Listen to Mysteries at the Museum wherever you get your podcasts. And then, if we therefore focus on the Great Lakes yeah. and this next migration or migrations, or I don't you know how, whatever it formed to the Great Lakes. Yeah. I mean, do we think that there's differences there when you see those people going eastwards? I mean, talk me through what you think is happening there with this Bantu emergence at the Great Lakes. Yeah, of course, new paths open up thanks to climate change, which is affecting, for example, the Central African rainforest. So, I mean, it is a risk, but there is maybe actually, you know, a sense of new opportunity in that direction because it's something that maybe wasn't as easy to explore beforehand. Also, I think, you know, it's important to think maybe about actually how the communication channels between East and West, how they might have affected this. Because one of the things that's thought is that the people in the, those ancient Sudanese who I mentioned earlier who knew about ironworking, they might have, for example, got that knowledge. Maybe from Meriwe, actually, which was an ironworking centre. So again, this is, this is Kush. But then also potentially from ancient modern in Nigeria, so the Nok, who were known as iron workers as well. So like iron crafting in, in West Africa has also been a big deal. So if we say that, for example, knowledge of iron working was spread from West to East Africa, then there is obviously some kind of communication. I mean, I think this is in the slightly late stages of, of the migration, but then there is actually contact then between West and East, which might have led to a flow of information that would have encouraged then those people to go East rather than go South. If, you know, we recognise that actually that path has opened up, but then also there is knowledge about actually what's going on there. And, you know, that knowledge might have something in it that's attractive to those people who decide to go East rather than go South down the Atlantic. And as you mentioned, so following then it gets a bit complicated with the dividing up into various different groups. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they're dividing before that. I mean, I just say I, this is, again, just a general sum, yes, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. but then, you know, there are some, for example, who even or even might have stayed on the Atlantic coast. Obviously, it depends on the evidence. I mean, sometimes as archaeologists and anthropologists, we'd, we'd be loath to say, OK, a group remained here if we don't find for example, evidence of people living there, you know, pottery or, you know, middens and all that type of stuff. But, you know, it's not to say, so it's like the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. Like people could have still stopped on the way as opposed to going all the way to Angola. And similarly for going across East, there might, there might have been some people who stopped on the way quarter away, two thirds of the way instead of carrying on, deciding to remain in settlements with, you know, hunter gatherers who lived on the route as opposed to reaching the Great Lakes. So that, you know, sort of dividing in those two is basically to try to explain how they get across the entire continent. But this is leaving out, obviously, some of the people on the way who might have stopped and decided to remain with other, you know, with hunter-gatherer settlements on the way. Because there's no evidence, therefore, that when the Bantu spread east or spread south, all the people that they come into contact with become farmers too, become pastoralists. Exactly. Some also exactly. retain the hunter-gatherer exactly. lifestyle, do they? Exactly. Well, I mean, so what's interesting is actually the ones who go down the... I mean, the major group, as it were, the group that we're sort of following, you know, accepting and leaving out those who might or might not have stayed, we're not really sure. 
those ones who end up in Angola after going down the west coast, they seem to be mainly sort of foraging still. They're not really ironworking and ironworking farmers. But actually, when the Great Lakes, when those ones come and join them in Angola, they basically introduce to them the ironworking. And so because those people, the people who'd gone east, had picked up this new technology by interacting with the Sudanese, this is something that, again, makes them a, a unique Banzu group, a different Banzu group. So when they reunite, and this is like several hundred years later, because I think, again, over a period of 3,000 years. So when they, again, reunite, and this is like early first millennium AD, then the Bantu went down the Atlantic coast and ended up in Angola. They actually learn ironworking and farming techniques from those who came from the Great Lakes. And obviously the Great Lakes people would have learned it from the Sudanese who'd learnt it potentially from the Nigerians. And this is basically a simplification of what might have been going on. But I think what's interesting is that, again, it shows you the level of contact, the level of migration. And in fact, it's, you know, what's again is important to get across in the migration is actually how does a culture, how does an iron working farming culture, this is the question that archaeologists in particular and anthropologists are interested in, is how relatively quickly does an iron working farming culture with a distinctive posture, etc., spread from one place across the entire continent in a matter of a few thousand years. The ironworking is really, really interesting. So what you're saying, once it gets to the Great Lakes, of all of these Bantu cultures, these Bantu peoples, ironworking is most prominent in that area. Yeah, it? it seems to be the Bantu there learn it from the Sudanese, uh, you know, the ancient Sudanese. And then, you know, again, a few hundred years later, when they join... Because what see, what's really interesting is that obviously the ones who... Let's say the ones who go down the Atlantic coast and end up in northern Angola and the ones who go first to the Great Lakes and, you know, learn the techniques and then come back west, they have the same ancestors. You know, they're all the same, they're a heritage. But over the period of those few hundred years where they took their alternate paths, when they reunite again, they're actually different. You know, they're completely different. There are the foraging, more stone-using Atlantic Coast Bantu, and then there's the farming iron using Great Lakes Bantu, who also probably have a high, you know, there are probably more of them because their firing techniques are giving them an edge in terms of population size. They might actually be militarily more proficient because they're using iron, they're using better weaponry. They might be technologically more advanced. You know, one thing that does interest me is actually how might that interaction have played out because they have the same heritage, but one might imagine that actually the Great Lakes Bantu, the ones who are using iron and, you know, no farming, uh, sort of see themselves maybe as being superior to the ones who came down the Atlantic coast who are still, main, you know, foraging mainly and using stone tools. So the fact that these two parts, even though they have the same origins, these two parts have transformed them, or their descendants rather, because again, it's their ancestors who moved, and then, you know, as you know, their descendants or you know, people who came later on, who um, became the Great Lakes Bantu, the ones who learnt, you know, the techniques, etc. But, you know, they're completely different. And then, you know, maybe even the stone, the Atlantic Coast Bantu, the ones who are still stone using, etc., are looking at the Great Lakes Bantu and thinking that these are, you know, these are more advanced people. And actually how that interaction might have played out, because the different Bantu groups moving across and interacting with different kinds of hunter-gatherers, I mean, some of them might have been rife with conflict. Some of them might have been conquests. And again, this is where 
the lack of written evidence about individuals and about particular people plays a part because actually if there was you know written stuff we might have been talking about battles like a series of battles between hunter-gatherers you know sort of what we have for example about let's say in America the expansion west and then their conflicts with the Native Americans it might have actually been like a similar thing but Bantus you know with other hunter-gatherers but we don't have that but some might have been peaceful some might have been rife with conflict others might have been like a combination of the two but then it's interesting to think about what then the nature then of the interaction between the Atlantic Coast Bantu and the Great Lakes Bantu if that was for example the Great Lakes Bantu conquering and imposing actually upon them an iron working farming culture or if it was the Atlantic Coast Bantu seeing that and saying you know we want to be like that and then adopting that culture, you know, sort of becoming assimilated into it, how that might have worked. Such a great topic, you know, for you is, you know, anthropology background, yeah. going so back into ancient history as well, you know, the, the mystery still surrounding it. To focus in on something like the Bantu migration and try to get your head around it must be such a difficult but enjoyable task at the same time. For sure. I mean, like I said, the only thing I decry is the lack of, you know, I would have really loved to know about the individuals who were key, I mean, over a period of several thousand years, but again, it was people just like us, you know, our families, you know, brothers and sisters. I mean, it's very, very personal, definitely very enjoyable. And what's nice is actually seeing the the different benefits of the different types of evidence that is used and actually, you know, the impact as well that it's had on the continent and on the peoples of the continent and the different cultures that comprise the continent. So, I mean, definitely a very, very enjoyable. Well, highlight for us what the significance, the real significance of the Bantu migration is for Africa's ancient history and, I guess, therefore, Africa's history in general. Yeah, so, I mean, it's interesting because the ironworking becomes such a distinctive feature. You know, that's when afterwards we're entering then and then the dawn of the Iron Age. So, for example, places like Zimbabwe, and I think it helps actually with the development of quote-unquote slightly more sophisticated or advanced societies, for example, in southern and like southern Central Africa. So Grezimboba, for example, is one good example because the cattle and similar with East Africa as well, but, you know, cattle is such like an important part of the economy. And obviously that's something that's introduced because of the Bantu migration to that region. Iron and iron working and iron tools is also important and you know iron forging again the the impacts that has on um for example helping a, a society become more military proficient and efficient and then the conquest which leads to the formation of these bigger kingdoms so it's do you know what it is i think it's actually maybe a, a helps the transformation in southern and eastern africa from potentially more egalitarian small hunter-gathering groups into essentially these massive centralized farming wealth-focused kingdoms in South Central Africa. I mean, it changes the nature of the societies. For example, they're more unequal, they're more stratified, some places like Great Zimbabwe. So it, yeah, I mean, it changes the nature of the societies in those regions. I mean, maybe if not for the Bantu migration, the fact that this iron working farming culture has took over and took over so quickly, more peoples in southern Central Africa might be like, for example, um, you know, the Khoisan today, which are one group, like they're a hunter-gathering group. Society has not changed for at least 100,000 years. They live in small hunter-gathering bands and they're people that archaeologists and anthropologists love to look at to understand how ancient, anatomically modern human hunter-gatherers might have lived 40, 60,000 years ago. They managed to escape the effect of that, but you know, other places didn't. For example, in South Africa, modern day South Africa, and talk about the nation here, and then in Zimbabwe, on the Swahili coast, places like Kenya and modern day Kenya and Tanzania, etc. If not for the Bantu migration, 
it might be that actually all those hunter-gatherer groups would have existed as they are today and you wouldn't have had the kingdoms that emerged later on in the medieval period. Is that like Kingdom of Benin and so on and well, so Benin, forth? Well, yeah, I mean, Benin, yeah. What kingdoms are we talking about? Benin, okay, so we're talking about the kingdoms of, for example, Mapungubwe, K2, Great Zimbabwe. I mean, what was important again for these was the uh, trade with Arabia and Persia, but we're also potentially talking about Kilwa, Safala, so those places in, in Eastern Africa as well. So because all those polities in Southern and Eastern Africa develop in quite a distinctive way, that in ways that we're a bit more familiar with now and have aspects, cultural or societal aspects with which we're more familiar now, international trade, elites and the gathering of wealth, luxurious displays of wealth especially. I mean, Great Zimbabwe is quite distinctive in this and they have these massive stone walls which are used and then the elites basically built these massive stone walls, but they built them almost like like concentric stone walls. And then, you know, they were in the middle. And then, you know, people outside the stone walls, those who weren't of the elite class were sort of kept outside the main like elite structure and divided from the elites by these stone walls. So those kind of features of society, I think, come about or at least are accelerated because of the Bantu migration and the way in which it changes the nature of societies because of the innovations that it introduces. It is so interesting how different, how that, you mentioned that diversity earlier, how much of a difference it made one group going south, the other group going east. East, and yeah. And how that influenced their descendants, didn't it? And yeah, it I mean, yeah. it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, it all depends on with whom they came into contact, right? Because I put a lot of emphasis on this, again, you know, I don't know how accurately, but the fact that they, the ones who went east met with these central Sudanese speakers, are, you know, so they became iron workers and, and farmers at least a lot faster, if at all, because of them and then happen to introduce it to, because some of them happened to go back west, happened to introduce it to those people who went to Angola and then they learned it and then they took it south. Again, if some of them hadn't gone west, they might not have developed the iron working stone. So it is that this culture spreads quite rapidly, but I think what is key is that it seems that everybody, whether by force, whether they want to or not, adopts the iron working farming culture. I mean, it's almost like a societal survival of the fittest is that the thing which gives you an edge over other societies, i.e. I working and from, is the thing that everybody ends up adopting because it is the thing that will give you an edge. So for example, the reason other groups either don't stay hunter-gatherers or forced, you know, not to be hunter-gatherers is because it's like if you want to compete, if you want to survive, you have to be a farmer and you have to use iron. You can't be foraging and using stone. That seems to be the way things happen, which is why then, wherever anybody with the ironworking or farming goes, they end up spreading that culture as opposed to being stopped. Although it does happen in some parts where you sort of stop and then actually there's a regression. So the people who are using ironworking and farming actually go back to the stone using. But that doesn't seem to be the, the general story. It is generally moved to a place, ironworking and farming culture is spread or adopted. Those people who learn it move to another place the cycle kind of repeats itself. It is a testament to the importance and efficiency of that culture. And then obviously everything that comes after that and builds after that, because, you know, with that and then with ironworking and then, you know, with uh, farming, increased population size, you know, farming surpluses, stratified societies. I mean, it completely, the way that then afterwards societies develops into what they are today is completely different. So, yeah, it would be interesting if that didn't happen and we just, you know, 
people there were just remained uh, hunter-gatherers. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go, there you go. I mean, last question, but I'm guessing this one's still shrouded in mystery. Do we know how the Bantu migration kind of peters out, how it ends, or do we just get a, a rough idea of how far it extends to and then it Yeah, kind of I mean, yeah. I mean, it almost seems to peter out basically where they have nowhere else left to go because yeah. it reaches like the far reaches of the continent. They get all the way to the eastern coast, you know, go across most of and almost to the end of the south of the continent. And it almost peters out somewhat naturally when there are almost no more new groups, as it were, to encounter, that then the adoption of ironworking and farming slows. So that's what seems to be the case. Well, this has been incredibly eye-opening, especially for someone like me who knew absolutely nothing about this before our chat today and a bit of research beforehand. You write all about this and so much more in your book. It's a bit far away still, isn't it, until it's yeah, released? Still but it, but, yeah, it, but we can, the most patient amongst us, we yes. are <laughs> awaiting with bated breath for when that's released in a year or so's time. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I hope that you know listeners who also might not have known anything about the mountain migration have picked up a little something in a, from what I've said and will you know look forward to the book that I'm writing in order to learn a bit more, but then also will hopefully be prompted to do a tiny bit of their own research in order to find out a bit more about it. And also to say to not be daunted because no one exactly knows what happens, but the key thing to remember that about this migration in particular is that it is just, you know, this rapid spread of this culture, ironworking and farming culture across, yeah, southern and eastern Africa. So yeah, I hope people are interested and I hope they take a look at more of it. Well, there we go. And it just goes me to say then, Luke, thank you so much for taking the time to come back on the podcast today, Amigo. Thank you very much, Tristan. It's a pleasure. Well, there you go. There was Luke Pepperer returning to the ancients to explain all things the Great Bantu Expansion. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. And if you did, well, you know what you can do. It's simple. It's easy. It helps us a lot. You'll have my eternal gratitude too. You can leave us a lovely rating on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps us as we continue to get bigger, to get better, to grow the podcast to reach more and more people, to share these amazing stories from our distant past with you and to give the spotlight to figures such as Luke and all our other incredible guests to shine lights on these awesome areas of our distant past. Help us as we conquer the ancient history media world. That is my secret objective too and I want you on board for our new ancient history world order. So come on. Get on board, leave us a lovely rating, you know you want to. Anyways, that's enough rambling on from me. I will see you in the next episode. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. 
source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.